I'm Jeff Ebert, and welcome to my weekly podcast, The Gospel Wabi Sabi, God's Good News for Imperfect People Like You and Me. We are deep into the Gospel of John now, chapter 18, starting with verse 28 today. And you know, if you're new to this podcast, I really encourage you to go back to season one, episode one, and just start at the beginning, because we're working our way sequentially through the Gospel of John. And if you haven't had all that background, many of the things towards the end of the Gospel are not really going to make any sense to you. So I'd encourage you to go back, start with Season 1, Episode 1, and work all the way through. And I think that way, hopefully, you're going to get a pretty thorough understanding and knowledge of the Gospel of John and the things that Jesus taught and the things that he lived. So let me really encourage you to go back and start from the beginning. And for those of you who've been with us uh, through the whole thing, I just want to thank you for your continued interest. And also, for those of you who are financial supporters, I really want to thank you for that. If you're interested in supporting the Gospel Wabi Sabi, you can just follow the program notes. There's a link there to the uh, hosting platform that will allow you to make a contribution. So thank you very much for that. So they say that in life, uh, life is kind of like the sum of your choices. And when you add it all up, it's what we do at the crossroad moments that really make us who we are. Our decisions kind of display what our true character really is. They highlight our strengths. They divulge our weaknesses. And today we'll see a man called Pilate confront Jesus at a crossroad moment in his own life. And in exploring his encounter with Jesus, I hope we may move to a deeper commitment to what it might mean for us to really stand for Jesus. So I'm going to be reading from John chapter 18, starting with verse 28. Then the Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, the Jews did not enter the palace. They wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. And Pilate said, Well, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, the Jews objected. This happened so that the words Jesus had spoken indicating the kind of death he was going to die would be fulfilled. Pilate then went back inside the palace and summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea? Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. It was your people and your chief priests who handed you over to me. What is it you have done? And Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were so, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. And Jesus answered, you are right in saying I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this reason I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? Pilate asked. With this he went out again to the Jews and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of Passover, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they shouted back, No, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in a rebellion. Now chapter 19. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, king of the Jews. And they struck him in the face. Once more Pilate came out and said to the Jews, Look, I am bringing him out to you 
to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to him, said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and the officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jews insisted, We have a law, and according to that law he must die, because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. And he went in back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize I have the power either to free you or to crucify you? And Jesus answered, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of the greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. But the Jews kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at the place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of the preparation of Passover week, about the sixth hour. Here is your king. Pilate said to the Jews, but they shouted, Take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. And finally Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. Pilate was a man of power a governor directly responsible to Caesar himself. He was used to being in control, used to giving orders, and used to having them obeyed instantly. He was not a person to be trifled with. Pilate understood power and how to use it for his own advantage. But into his life comes Jesus, and what first appears to be a petty religious squabble among the Jews. And initially he didn't care to be involved at all and sent Jesus to Herod, the puppet king. That part isn't recorded for us in John's Gospel, and you'll have to read that encounter in the other Gospels. But Herod just sends Jesus right back. The high priest Caiaphas, his father-in-law Annas, and their cronies all want Jesus out of the way permanently. But they had a problem. Collaborating with the Romans gave them a good deal of power, a lot of wealth, but they did not have the right to carry out the death penalty. So street justice sometimes occurred when people were spontaneously stoned to death, They had tried that numerous times with Jesus, but it hadn't worked out. Somehow he always slipped away and eluded their plot. And so they came to Pilate because he was the one who had, as they called it, the right of the sword. That meant he had the right to demand Jesus' death. Now in the Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious council, they had charged Jesus with the crime of blasphemy. But blasphemy carried zero weight with Pilate. It was never mentioned to Pilate till the very end. Why would he care about their religion? Before Pilate, they leveled a purely political charge. The Gospel of Luke tells us that they said Jesus was stirring up the people against the government, that Jesus was encouraging people not to pay their taxes, and that Jesus was saying he was the king. Now, it's, it's amazing how hatred will tr- twist the truth, especially in politics. And don't we see it all the time? The leaders of the Sanhedrin had become blind to, re- to the reality of what they were doing. So they changed the story. They only used the facts that fit their version of events, and that's what gets passed along. 
Everything else conveniently omitted. That's why the expression, the facts speak for themselves, is never really true. Someone's always having to give their interpretation of the so-called facts. And the leaders of the Sanhedrin were amazing in their inconsistency. The, the priests were so orthodox, they would not enter Pilate's headquarters because he was a Gentile. They had to be perfectly clean to celebrate the Passover. And one of their cleanliness rules said Jews could not go into a Gentile home because they served leavened bread in that house. Exposure to leaven then would make a Jew ceremonially unclean for the Passover. The priest perfectly fulfilled that little religious law. Yet what they're, they're involved in, they're plotting, lying, conspiring to kill the very Son of God. I mean, their orthodoxy was so cold. They were so religious and so deceived, so careful, so perfect, but so out of touch with God. So they come with a charge of sedition, moving Jesus into Pilate's, uh, Pilate's turf. It was all based on a lie. Jesus never claimed to be establishing an earthly kingdom. He said, if I was, I'd have all my disciples fighting. And Jesus didn't allow that. Jesus wasn't king of the world. He was Lord of the universe. So actually, king of the world wasn't a big enough title for him. He's actually Lord of all. And Pilate senses he's really in trouble. But even with all these charges, it is clear Pilate did not want to condemn Jesus. After questioning him in verse uh, 38, he says, I find no basis for a charge against him. He tries everything not to be responsible for Jesus' death. He knew Jesus was innocent, but he was only worried about saving his own position because Jesus caught him off balance. And so he tries four different ways to deflect responsibility. First, he just tries to evade it completely, tries to turn things back over to the Jewish leaders. He doesn't want in any way to have any responsibility for anything when it comes to Jesus. You guys go solve this yourselves. And there are a lot of people today that want to evade any conversation concerning Jesus whatsoever. Change the subject. Don't talk about it. That's private. Religion's personal. It's not really anything you need to discuss. Not now. Maybe later after I think about it. Well, a lot of times that doesn't happen. And it's just a way of evading the bigger question. But second, Pilate then tries to be magnanimous. There was this custom for the Romans to release a prisoner to the Jews at Passover. It was a gesture, but also kind of a subtle reminder that he held the lives of the Jews in his hands as a whim. So Pilate decides, I'll set Jesus free. Won't that satisfy everybody? But instead, the, call, the crowd calls for Barabbas, someone who was actually really trying to overthrow Caesar as a rebellious rebel. That's another uh, ironic thing, the story about Barabbas and how he was released. I don't have time to go into that today. But even here, there's no hiding behind his phony generosity. No escape from dealing directly with Jesus. It was a good try. Pilate was still forced to confront Jesus. Third, Pilate then tries to compromise. I'll beat him up. I'll not only beat him up, I'll have him scourged and that will be enough. Those of you who saw the graphically bloody Mel Gibson movie, The Passion of the Christ, you probably saw and remember just how disturbing that really was. The actual torture isn't described much in Scripture, but the depiction of it in The Passion of the Christ was pretty close to reality. It was a terrible torture. Think of a baseball bat with leather straps attached at the end, and the ends of the straps are studded with pieces of metal and sharp stone. The biggest lug nut in the Roman army then takes batting practice on the back of the poor prisoner. 
The leather straps are, are bad enough, but they also wrap around the body of the victim, sink into the flesh, and then when yanked back, they pull away chunks of flesh, turning the back of the victim literally into hamburger. Most people either died while they were scourged or they went insane because of the pain. Pilate almost beats Jesus to death. And he thinks that might satisfy the bloodlust of the crowd. He tears Jesus' back to pieces, brings him out before this crowd. The soldiers continue to humiliate Jesus with a crown of thorns and a purple robe. And I think Pilate was thinking maybe publicly shaming Jesus will be enough. But that kind of compromise didn't work either. Finally, Pilate tries to absolve himself. You know, Matthew records him washing his hands as a symbolic way of absolving himself. You know, if someone says today, I wash my hands of this, well, they got that expression from this story and experience in the Bible with Pilate. I mean, Shakespeare picked up on the image in a scene from Lady Macbeth uh, when he tries, she tries to wash the blood of her hands after a murder, and she can't quite get the stain off. And she famously says of her stained hands, which are really a symbol of her stained soul, she says, out, out, damn spot but it won't go away. She could clean her hands, but in her mind, the spot, the stain was always there on her soul. And in the same sense, the stain of Jesus's blood will always be upon Pilate. Isn't that why in our ancient creeds, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, when it comes to the death of Christ, we say he was crucified, how? Under Pontius Pilate. The blame for Jesus's death is solely placed on him. He could not escape the personal burden of how he dealt with Jesus. Anyone who rejects Jesus rejects the very life of God. Listen to how 1 John 5, 12 says it. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. So Pilate, trying to wash his hands of the responsibility, cannot do so because he is personally rejecting the very Son of God. There's a touching moment in chapter 18, verse 38, when Pilate asks Jesus, what is truth? A lot of different ways people kind of look at that question from Pilate. You know, was he just being sarcastic? Was he being flip with Jesus? Or was he perhaps, maybe just for a moment, was he wondering, what is this truth that Jesus is talking about? For Pilate, he had everything, and yet somehow perhaps he knew something was missing in his life. I think he might have asked it in a sad, almost mournful voice. It almost feels like he's reaching out just a little bit. I almost want to shout backwards in time. Keep going, Pilate. You're on the right track. Listen to him. You're almost there. The truth is not some abstract philosophy. The truth is a person, and it's standing right there in front of you, wrapped in human skin. It's Jesus himself. You can almost hear the echo of Jesus' words from John 14:6. I am the truth. I am the light. But unfortunately, that as far as Pilate, that's as far as Pilate was willing to go, was just to ask the question. Well, you might be asking a question. How could such a man of power be coerced into doing what he knew wasn't right? How could the mob blackmail such a strong, fierce leader? Well, it's because Pilate was a man who was afraid of his past. His power had gotten him into trouble before. And though the governors ruled in the Roman Empire, local leaders still had the right to send a review of any misgovernment to Rome. And if the charges were proven to be true, such a governor could be dealt with severely. Pilate had already made two big mistakes in Israel. First, when he first entered Jerusalem in AD 26, 
The tradition of the Roman soldiers was to carry at the lead a pole topped with a tiny statue of the emperor, who was then officially worshipped as a god. And the people were expected to bow before that divine image of the emperor as it passed by. It was a sign of obedience. The Romans didn't care what gods their conquered people worshipped, as long as the emperor was worshipped at the top of the list. Worship the emperor, you can go on worshipping whatever, whoever you want to, no problem. But that was fine in most parts of the world, but Jewish law forbade graven images or images of any god but Yahweh. In deference to Jewish principle, all previous governors had removed the imperial image off the pole before the troops marched into Jerusalem. Pilate did not. He purposefully and intentionally wanted to display his power. And when he did so, a crowd of devout Jews came to protest. For five days, they blocked his progress with basically what amounted to a sit-down strike in the city of Jerusalem. And on the fifth day, Pilate agreed to meet with them. He then surrounded them with his soldiers and gave them the ultimatum. Either they, they stopped their protest or would have them slaughtered. They all knelt down, bared their necks, and said they would rather die than see God dishonored and their laws transgressed. Now, as cold as Pilate was, even he couldn't slaughter that many people in cold blood. And so he gave in and removed the image. He lost face. And he never forgot that moment of humiliation. He wasn't going to be placed in an unwinnable situation again. The second thing Pilate did was raid the treasury of the great temple. He stole millions from it in coins and gold and all the rest. Because he was in need of money for the construction of a new aqueduct. The people were outraged. They surged into the streets, rioting for days upon days. And Pilate mingled his men in plain clothes among the crowd and then at a certain single signal, they took out their concealed weapons and slaughtered people in the streets. His cruelty and greed led him to fear that his past failures would catch up with him, that he'd be reported to Rome, and that would be used against him. And so he caved into the crowd's demands here. They used this knowledge as a lever to move him to join their cause. There is an ominous hint of this in chapter 19, verse 12 where they say, if you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend. They held the threat of an official report back to Rome over his head, and it gripped Pilate with a tremendous fear. How often does a person's past rise up to haunt them, confront them, paralyze them? How many of us still struggle with failures in our own history? How often do we let our past failures keep us from experiencing God's life for us in the present? And keep us from risking anything for the future. Jesus was constantly liberating people into the newness of life. The prostitute mired in sexual sin and guilt, crippled by abuse in a male-dominated society, or Zacchaeus, whose financial deals caused him to be hated and considered worse than a criminal. Those who just felt like they were cut loose in life, those who were drifting without anything substantial to hold on to, Jesus became the liberating force, the solid ground that gave real peace and happiness and security when all else had failed. Although Pilate is a man of power, he feared his past, and most of all, he's a man to be pitied. I believe he sensed the liberating power of Jesus, but because of his fears, he turned away. Pilate was a man who understood power, and like so many others, I believe he sensed the power of Jesus. When he faced him, I think he felt he was on trial, 
not Jesus. And then it says that Jesus was silent. It's a very powerful moment when Jesus is silent. He was silent before the high priest. He was totally silent before Herod, the Jewish king. And at times now, he is silent before Pilate. Don't you realize I have the power to crucify you? And Jesus said to him, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. And then Jesus was silent before him. I think it must be a terrible experience to stand before Jesus Christ when he is silent. All the arguments, all the discussions, all the excuses, all the debates mean nothing when we stand before the Lord of history. There can be nothing more terrible than for a person's heart to be so shut and closed by pride and fear that Jesus has nothing to say to them. Think about that for a moment. It is an awesome, terrible day, a terrible day when Jesus is silent with anyone. Could it mean that person is beyond hope? Well, I pray that we never really experience the silence of Jesus like that. Pilate treated many Jewish things with contempt, but not Jesus. And I think he glimpsed the sheer majesty of the man, so much so that even after Christ had been scourged, Pilate took him out before the crowd. He was bloody, he was beaten, the crown of thorns upon his head, the robe, and he makes this simple statement in Latin, Ecce homo. Ecce homo. Behold the man. Here is the man. Look at him. Now that Latin phrase doesn't mean much to us, but it was a very important expression to the Romans. It had a double meaning. For some, perhaps he was attempting to awaken sympathy for Jesus. Look at him. He's all bruised, bleeding, beat up. Isn't that enough? Isn't it enough that we beat him up and makes him look this bad? How can you condemn him to death? See how weak he looks. It could have been something a little bit more than that. It could have been that Pilate was amazed by Jesus's sheer physical courage and physical and emotional strength, his character, his demeanor, his bearing. Because there's the second meaning to the phrase ecce homo. The ancient Roman poets used the same expression when they spoke of the ideal man, the perfect man, the man who was the epitome of all humanity and of masculinity, the universal man, the man that every man should try to become. I think Pilate sensed the incredible nature of this man, Jesus, and sought somehow to communicate that to the crowd. Ecce homo, behold the man. We know Christ to be more than just a great man, a great teacher. We know him to be God in the flesh. But I hope there is a point where we are drawn to Christ because of the perfection we see in his earthly humanity. Can he really be that universal man, the one who really ties all things together, the one who transcends all time, all cultures, all history, to be the one who gives abundant life through faith in him? Years ago, when I was a student at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary outside of Boston, I was greatly influenced by Professor Dean Borgman. He's probably the most unusual Episcopal priest I'd have ever met. Now, he grew up in the late 40s and 50s in a well-to-do family in suburban Connecticut. And as a young person, he was really trying to figure out this faith thing about Jesus. Was it really real? Sure, you know, my parents believe, but can it be real? Can Jesus make it out there in the real world. And so to test that, he thought he'd join the army. He became an airborne paratrooper. 
to see if Jesus was strong enough to make it in the army. Then, that wasn't enough. He served as a missionary in a remote part of Ethiopia to see if Jesus could be real to those people in a different culture. And then he started an urban youth ministry out of his little tenement apartment uh, with another guy down on the Lower East Side of New York City. Again, to see if Jesus, was Jesus just white? Or would he be able to touch the lives of these black kids down on the Lower East Side? One of the gang kids he ministered to was a guy named Bo Nixon, whom I got to know pretty well as one of the missionaries supported by my former church, which was outside of New York City. Bo became the director of that ministry and served other street kids for more than four decades, trying to show them that Jesus was real. But Dean was trying to see, can Jesus make it there? And Dean's final assessment was, yes. Jesus can make it in all situations. He is the man. And he is more than that. He's the Savior. Into Pilate's life came Jesus, and suddenly he saw that what he had missed all his life That day he might have found all that was lacking in his life, but he didn't have the courage to defy the crowd, to defy his past, and to take his stand shoulder to shoulder with Jesus. How about you? Don't be like Pilate, so enmeshed in your past failures or your present fears that you're rendered unable to stand shoulder to shoulder with Christ and live the kind of life he has for you. He is a man, he is the man who deserves our allegiance, the one and only, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning of the end. Take your stand beside him. Have a great week.